Amen. Thanks, Austin. So good morning. Uh, didn't introduce myself earlier. My name is Jonathan. One of the pastors here at Redeemer, uh, and we are, or we've been, I should say, in a series on the Lord's Prayer this summer. Uh, this is a prayer uh, many, whether they would call themselves Christians or not, will find familiar because you've probably recited it at funerals. You've heard it recited at bedsides as someone is dying, maybe, or uh, foxholes heading into battle. Uh, it's a general acknowledgement that what we say in the Lord's Prayer is a general application of all prayer. It's something special and important, uh, even to Apple, because as I was preparing on my iPad, if I didn't capitalize Lord's Prayer, it defaulted to it being capitalized. So that was pretty cool. Uh, we started the series all the way back on Pentecost Sunday uh, in June, a celebration of the day in Acts chapter 2, where the Spirit comes in power on a, a gathering of uh, God's people in Jerusalem. And then we spent the remainder of the summer on each phrase of the prayer because there we find, as we've been saying again and again, a rubric to live the Christian life. And in fact, the church has for thousands of years found a rubric to live the Christian life in the Lord's Prayer. And here's the thing, in a post-Christian world, we need discipleship that produces change into the image of Jesus. And that only happens as we concentrate on some aspect of Jesus long enough that we begin to look like him. We want to become Jesus people. Uh, I think they were first, that term was first coined in the 70s. Maybe we need to go back to being Jesus people like those people. Uh, we want redeemer people to be people who look like Jesus, who have his heart, who have his cadences, indeed even his prayer life. And so we're going to zoom back out as we finish <clears throat> this morning, uh, because we move to a new series next week, and you'll just have to wait and see. I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag. You have to come back next week to see where we're going from here. But in the Gospels, you follow Jesus through his life and ministry, and you find some dramatic scenes, and then you find some more mundane ones, everyday ones, normal ones, because he wasn't always healing or raising the dead or calming a storm. You know, he was eating, teaching, debating. In fact, most of his life has lived in these common, ordinary moments, as is ours. And not the flashy or the earth-shattering times, and the story today is one of those. It's, it's so earthy, it's so normal, because it's about a meal, right? Something we do every day. As Jesus and his disciples are traveling along, he stops off, the text says, to have dinner with friends. And remember, we said at the beginning of the series that this passage is about prayer. In fact, from chapter 10, verse 38, which is where we're going to start today, all the way through to uh, Luke 11, verse 13, which is kind of where Drew began back at the beginning of the series, this whole little section is on prayer. And this passage is about a common everyday thing because the common everyday is where we learn to pray. It's where we form the habits that will sustain us when we come to the crises or the tragedies of life. And that we, what we learn today is that these two sisters have two very different prayers with two very different approaches to Jesus. Now you can follow along on the insert. That contains the outline that we're going to follow. It's pretty straightforward. We're going to profile the three characters in the story, Martha, Mary, and Jesus. 
And as we do that, I hope we're going to learn some things about prayer from them as well. So let me read these three texts, though, uh, as we begin. You can follow along on the screen uh, in your worship folder, in your Bible. If you're watching online, it should be on the screen uh, for you as we read. So three passages, first from Luke uh, chapter 10, and then I'm going to jump to uh, Philippians 4 and John 15. So hear God's word. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Then from Philippians 4, just three verses, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then third and finally from John 15 verses 4 and 5, abide in me, Jesus says, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Say it with me. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. So here's uh, my question. We like to start with a question, and this is it. What is the one thing necessary for you to get through every single day? You know, the thing that if you don't get done, you are undone. The thing so necessary that you might say you can't live without it. Uh, The songs that we sang, I'm going to move this back a little bit. Hopefully I don't screw something up. Okay, there we go. Uh, The songs that we've sang so far really do get at this. Do you think of Jesus in the way that we have sung, that Jesus is my life? That uh, give us a vision of your love, let us fall in love with you again, you are more beautiful than anything? Do you speak of him? Do you speak to him? Do you think of him in that way? If you find yourself struggling to come up with the question, that one thing, back to that question, coming up with the one thing necessary, you're not alone. We we have a hard time coming up with the one thing necessary. And our our lives telling us as a a result of that, we, we have a lot more in common with Martha Martha, not Marsha. Those of you who remember the old Brady Bunch, not Marsha, Martha. So let's look at Martha, and then we're going to look at Mary, and then we're going to end by looking at 
Jesus. Martha is serving distracted. Now, there's a number of things to note about Martha. And as God would have it, we're reading through the Gospel of John in our community Bible reading uh, right now. Uh, And we just read John 11. uh, I believe it was Friday. So you've got Martha, clearly a leader, uh, an ambitious woman in the first century, which was odd anyway, because women were kind of like children to be seen and not heard, or better yet, not even seen. They were pretty low on the social totem pole, but you find in the Gospels them being lifted up, especially by Jesus again and again. But if you look at John 11, you don't have to turn there, but in John 11, some examples of this, verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Sound familiar? She's the leader. She's the initiative taker. She's the one who bosses everyone around. Verse 32 of John 11, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Sound familiar? And then verse 39, this is classic Martha. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. You idiot. Right? This, this is classic Martha. Notice the text here. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Her name was on the title or the deed. Her house, right? Not Mary's, not Lazarus's. So she's clearly got some financial stability or expertise. She's got something in her that has allowed her to build up the clout and the influence to own a home and for her home to be known as a place where rabbis would come, be welcomed to come and eat, particularly this one. We know from the Gospels that Jesus spent time there on several occasions. He was close to their family. She's got much to serve. You see where it says she was distracted with much serving? That means this was a feast. And she wanted to honor Jesus as any of us would, right? She's gone to great lengths. Well, what's distracting her? Not her children or her commercial interests or something like that. No, it's her service to Jesus that is the primary thing pulling her away, causing her to run around like a chicken with its head cut off. She's serving. Twice in the passage, the word for serving is the word for deaconing. This isn't worldly service. This is her ministry to Jesus. See, she is the 20% of any church that does all the volunteering, all the signing up, even the working part-time or full-time for the church. In fact, in the Middle Ages, this passage became known as or got used as an example of saying, look, do you see, do you see how Mary is sitting at the feet of the Lord? She's not doing anything. That's called full-time Christian service. Martha is the distracted one. She's distracted by all these other things. She's not focused on Jesus. Be more like Martha, church, or excuse me, be more like Mary, church, not like Martha. And that the, middle, the church in the Middle Ages actually separated them such that Martha became the representative for secular work and worldly work, right? And Mary became the example for full-time Christian service. Wrong. They're both focused on and serving Jesus. Just for different purposes, in different ways, as we'll see. Martha is 
Look at what Jesus says, anxious and troubled about many things. Why is that? Because she's not praying. The words mean she's tossed to and fro. She's torn into many pieces, spread in many directions. Can you feel that? Are you there? Maybe this morning. Maybe in the past week. Do you feel a sense of being tossed to and fro? Anxious, troubled about many things, many directions. What's the one thing necessary for you to get through the day? I can't come up with one thing. I've got 800 things. And if I don't get all 800 done, I'm undone. There's so many things Martha's trying to prioritize. And the problem is they end up controlling her. Uh, I, I put there in the resources, see it on the, in, in the worship folder uh, under the passages, just, just one resource uh, today, and I'm going to actually quote from A Praying Life a number of times. Uh, we highly recommend this book. It's a book that it would be our goal that uh, as many people in Redeemer as can read through it and even go through small groups that are sort of focused on it uh, because there is so much good in it. But Paul says, Paul Miller says this, because anxiety is self on its own, it tries to get control. It's unable to relax in the face of chaos. Once one problem is solved, the next one steps up. And that's Martha. Martha's core is action, busyness, activity. Now, how do we know that Martha was working for herself and not Jesus? Because she's working so feverishly, but what does she say? What is her prayer to the Lord? Do you not care? Are you paying attention to me working and slaving while this lazy sister sits here on her butt? She's not working for him. She's worried about preparing a meal. And so she's stressed. Can you sympathize? Well, I can. I had personal, several personal moments of repentance this week thinking about this and preparing uh, for this. Because whenever we have people over to our home for a meal, here's what happens. I, I enjoy cooking. Not that Jamie doesn't like to cook, but I kind of like cooking more than she does. So oftentimes, we'll be preparing the meal. People will come over. We'll have the meal. And inevitably, I find myself getting everyone's stuff and putting it up and getting in the kitchen with the sink, putting stuff into the dishwasher. What am I missing that whole time? Well, conversation. So I hear Jamie in there laughing, hooping and hollering, having a great time with whoever is over, and I'm in the kitchen. Now, why is that? Well, there's a number of reasons for that. <laughs> there's a number of reasons. I won't go into all of them. Our, our very un, unbehaved dog could have something to do with it, that he might get up and you know want to get some scraps or something, and so I feel the need to clean everything or at least get it tucked away. But... The word that always hits me is the word lingering. I struggle to linger at the table, conversing, and just enjoying whoever I'm with while the dishes are over here or the pots are on the stove or whatever it is. I find myself really struggling to linger. Martha was not lingering. She was so busy. So busy so stressed, so anxious and troubled. 
See, there will always be a million things to do, right? There'll be meals to prepare, laundry to do, floors to sweep, yards to mow, cars to maintain, emails to answer, phone calls to return, appointments to keep. And if you're like Martha, you're living just swept away from one to the next, to the next, to the next, and on and on it goes, collapsing into bed and then getting up the next day to do it all over again. Here's the thing about busyness. Busyness creates an inner turmoil because our work Even our work for good, our work for Jesus, can't satisfy us. That's why Jesus says, you're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is necessary. And see, when we have too many competing and non-negotiable goals that we must meet to be happy, we are ensuring our misery. She was miserable. Do Do you get this? The Lord of the universe was in her living room, and she was grumpy. I can relate to Martha. I have lots of wonderful people in my home from time to time, and rather than enjoying them, I'm grumpy. I want to get everything done. I don't linger. Busyness also creates an irritability with and a sense of moral superiority over others, including God. If you notice, Martha projects her expectations on her sister and assumes that she's in the right, and the most important person in the room would agree with her, but he doesn't. Her obsession with busyness and productivity made her believe she was morally superior even to Jesus. And when we grow bitter toward other people for not meeting our expectations, we grow bitter toward Jesus for not correcting them. And you see that in the way that she says, Lord, do you not care? And that leads me to one more. It leads us to question God's character, busyness does. Questioning God's character reveals our busyness to be what it really is, our idol. Uh, Tim Keller, who uh, is a a former pastor in uh, New York City, has this to say about Martha. He says, if Martha really was doing it for Jesus, she wouldn't have been upset when he refused to let things go the way she wants Her unanswered plea proved she was not doing it for Jesus. She was doing it for herself. Because, you see, what she wanted was her sister to get back in the kitchen with her because that's where women belonged. You realize the picture of Mary, and I'll I'll mention this again in just a few minutes, was a picture of a disciple. Sitting at the Lord's feet was code for she's acting like a disciple. And women were not to be disciples. They were to be servers in the kitchen. And Jesus refuses to tell Mary to get up and do what Martha, in her busyness, is so desperate for her to do. Have you ever been at the beach with a young child, and when when you stand in the surf, right where the waves are breaking, if you can't stand and plant your feet in the sand to take a step, and heck, this happens to adults, right? The, 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 The force of the water to and fro like this, right in that section, you know what I'm talking about, If you don't plant your feet real solidly as you're stepping up out of that little section of surf, you get swept back out. That's what Martha's presence felt like. It was just this whoosh back and forth, right? But Paul Miller again says this, when you pray continuously, moments when you are prone to anxiety can become invitations to drift. I love that word, drift into prayer. 
when you stop trying to control your life and instead allow your anxieties and your problems to bring you to God in prayer, you shift from worry to watching. Instead of trying to be out front designing your life, you realize you're inside the drama of God, that he's writing the story. And as you wait, you begin to see him work, and your life begins to sparkle with wonder. That leads me to Mary. That's why she could sit and listen to watch God in the flesh work and teach. She's full of wonder. Have you ever thought about this? What do you think her face looked like as she listened to Jesus' teaching? As they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. What do you think her face looked like? What would your face look like? Mary's not full of worry. She's full of watching. Her core is relationship. And it wasn't as if Mary hadn't served at all. She just knew when to quit and go spend time with Jesus. Martha says, do you not care that my sister has left me? So she had previously been working and serving and doing something in the kitchen. But at some point, Jesus began to teach. She stopped what she was doing. She went straight in there, sat down, and focused in. Mary's prayer is after Jesus. Again, Paul says, time in prayer makes you even more dependent on God because you don't have as much time to get things done. Every minute spent in prayer is one less minute where you can be doing something productive. So the act of praying means you have to rely more on God. See, Mary has forgotten all about preparing the feast because she's eating a feast. She's so relaxed and content, she's feasting on the words of God himself. Now, if you look back at the assurance of pardon from John chapter 6, Jesus says he is the bread we need. Drew talked about this uh, a few weeks back in thinking about the, the statement in the Lord's Prayer, give us each day our daily bread. He's the bread we need. He's the drink we need. In fact, he says everyone who looks on the sun and believes will have eternal life. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I mean, Surely, she knew he was saying things like this. See, to sit at someone's feet in the Bible was a posture of submission. It meant you were placing yourself under their authority. And Mary submits to Jesus because she has learned over time that he's worth submitting to. She had seen him raise the dead, cast out demons, forgive prostitutes and tax collectors, embrace children. She knew him to be the one who didn't cast a woman out with a 12-year battle with anemia, but he searched her out. He said, who touched me? He says, you are healed. Go in peace. The Gospel of Luke in particular highlights his attention to the weak and the forgotten, the social outcasts and the marginal, and women were on that list. And Jesus was always paying attention to them and including them. He was traveling in Luke chapter 8, and his family couldn't talk to him because the crowds were so big. And when he was questioned about it, he said, My family members in the kingdom of God are those who hear his word and do it. Now, how else would that happen to you and I unless we sat at his feet? How else is that going to happen unless we listen intently? And in Mary, what you're seeing is a person enamored with Jesus' teaching, a person like the psalmist. Those words from Psalm 119 in the reading of the law, the Lord is my portion, I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. If you read Psalm 119 
And some of the things that are said in Psalm 119, like, I love your rules. If reading Psalm 119, you begin to get nervous. Maybe you have not taken the Lord's word as seriously as you ought. Maybe it's still kind of, you know, I'll obey when I want or when it's convenient. That's not what the psalmist says. He says, I love your law. I love your words. They are life. Now, of course, Mary had the experience of Jesus in the flesh, but our communion with him by the Holy Spirit is no different. Sitting at his feet, listening to his teaching, enjoying his presence in prayer will mean less production. It will mean less time to complete tasks like preparing a feast, but it will mean more joy, more contentment, more peace. Oh man, don't you long for what Mary had? I mean, can you feel the difference between the two of them? Not just here, but even in John chapter 11. She's the boss out in front. Lord, he's over here. Remove the stone. Lord, he's been dead four days. Mary's still sitting in the house. Mary comes as soon as she finds out he's within earshot or close to the village. She goes and falls at his feet. Oh, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So different. Whatever burdens, whatever heartaches, whatever struggles Mary was dealing with in her life, and she had them, we find her here taking them to Jesus. She listened so well and so often that she got the message the disciples didn't even get. Listen to this. You may or may not realize, in John chapter 12, we'll read it tomorrow, Mary anoints Jesus with an expensive perfume, and Jesus had to explain her behavior to the disciples. They're, they're like, why is she wasting all this expensive perfume? That could be sold and given to the poor. What is going on? Now, how did she know? Because what does he say she's actually doing? Do you remember? Leave her alone. She's doing a beautiful thing for me. She is preparing me for burial. Now, how did she know? Because she listened. She listened time and again. And this woman anticipated the coming suffering of the Messiah before Peter and John, the guys who wrote books in the Bible, did. Because she listened. She's the picture of a disciple. But, but why? 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 Why does she sit at his feet under his authority and listen so focused and quiet? Why does she posture herself this way? And this is third and finally where we're going to end. She does this because she had seen him, that is Jesus, do it over and over toward his father. And so as you come to Jesus, what you see is a person who is offering intimacy. Paul Miller says, it's there in your outline, a praying life feels like our family mealtimes because prayer is all about relationship. I love that statement. I'm so convicted by that statement. See, to become a person like Mary, sitting at Jesus' feet, listening intently to his words, and having fellowship with him in prayer, you have to settle your family status. We talked about this at the start of the series. So just going back to review, the main reason we don't pray is unbelief. It's wrong beliefs and assumptions about who God is and his heart for us. See, you come to know God as you come to know that you are in relationship with him. The opening line of the prayer uh, the Lord's Prayer, is Father. You come to know God by coming to know his heart. Knowing him results in intimacy, and that's Jesus' goal for us in a praying life, 
intimacy. When you hear the word intimacy, you probably think in a, in a marriage context of physical intimacy, right? But have you ever thought about the intimacy, the oneness that we share and are designed to share and faith in Jesus unites us to him to share? So you got to know first your relationship to God, your family status. If you're here this morning and not a Christian, or you're unsettled about the question of who God is, is there one? Does he even care about me? I've got great news. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, he says, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, for this passage to come home to your heart, here's what you do. You put your name in it. You personalize it. So you say, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem Jonathan, who was under the law, so that Jonathan might receive adoption as, son, as a son. You put your name in it, it'll change your life. Because it takes it from being a generic statement to a personal statement. Jesus Christ was expelled from the family. He was erased as a son. He experienced cosmic separation, the opposite of intimacy, in order that you and I might be brought in as sons and daughters, that we might be adopted, that we might gain the good portion, which is just a code word for him. A Christian is someone who has been united to Jesus by faith through his spirit. Now, how do you know which trajectory you're on? Is your tendency to be Martha-ish or Mary-ish? Well, do you have a prayer life? How does it function? Right, Mary's, or excuse me, Martha's life and heart are busy, so prayer is a means to an end. Mary's life was probably just as busy as her sister's, but her heart is inwardly quiet. It's at rest. Prayer, communion, fellowship, sitting at his feet, time with Jesus, that is the end. So you've got to know your family status, but you've also got to know his heart. Oh man, this is so good. How does he respond to Martha? He loves her. He refuses to answer Martha's prayer because he wants her to see that, listen, trusting in her service to save her will destroy her. See, the more plates you and I try to get spinning and keep spinning to prove our serving is for God or to impress other people or to appease some inner drivenness that's compelling us to work, 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 the more frustrated and exhausted with everyone else, including God, we will be. Martha's prayer, her plea to Jesus, reveals she doesn't believe he's for her, but here's the thing, only in failing will Martha realize that time with Jesus is more important than a put-together meal or event, and that is what he's after. Now, how do we know that he loved her and wanted good for her? Well, he repeats her name. That may seem weird, but in the Bible, it's a sign of tenderness. It's a sign of deep emotion. When David was mourning for his son, Absalom, he said, oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, Absalom. When Jesus gets to the end of his life and he comes over the crest of the Mount of uh, Olives, maybe. Uh, I don't remember the geography. Anyway, uh, it's toward the end, Palm Sunday, and he looks down on the city. What does he say? You morons. No. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. His heart is broken. And then on the cross, of course, he says, my God, my God. When, when words, when phrases, when names, especially are repeated in the Bible, 
It's a sign of tenderness, of heartbreak. Because, you see, Jesus longs for intimacy because he knows we were made for it. And so, in the first verse of Luke 11, the disciples notice Jesus' intimacy with God. He sits at his Father's feet every morning. And so, prayer is a means of this. It's a means of grace, grace grace-driven effort to develop a habit And the habit that will shape you is to develop one that you spend tens of thousands of hours in. Drew talked about this back at the beginning of the series, right? For the Christian, prayer is one of those habits because it draws us into and it flows out of intimacy with God himself. Now, I'll I'll, uh, I'll finish here, but uh, do you remember that relationship? Did you ever have that relationship? Many times it's in high school, right? You know the one, the one where you've fallen in love for the first time. You know, the one where you begin sacrificing your time, money, and common sense to spend every waking moment you possibly can with the other person. You'll do the dumbest things or, or the foolish things or the most sinful things even sometimes, right? Why? Well, who else would I want to be with? Sometimes you even lose friendships. Maybe you even lose a closeness with your parents, but it's all worth it. Why? Because you have to be with them. You're desperate to spend more time with them, get to know them, because you enjoy them. And that's Mary's posture. That's Mary's attitude. Martha might have been hoping to catch a phrase here and there, or maybe she'd pause in the middle of preparing or walking through the living room for the 800th time as she prepared the feast. She's hoping to catch a nugget from Jesus' mouth. But that's not prayer. That doesn't result in fellowship or communion. You don't get close to another person with that strategy. Paul Miller says this, you don't create intimacy, you make room for it. This is true whether you're talking about your spouse, your friend, or God. You need space to be together. See, efficiency and multitasking and busyness, they all kill intimacy. You can't get to know God on the fly because he's a person after all. And how do you get to know a person? Time plus presence equals enjoyment. You need both of those. So, as we finish, look at John 15. John 15, uh, those two two verses there, we're given a picture of just how intimate our connection to Jesus is, which I, I hope will help prayer make more sense. I think it does. Jesus defines his relationship to us as the vine's relationship to the branches. And he says their union is so complete, so vital, that he says they're abiding The branches wouldn't exist unless they were united to the vine, and the vine wouldn't have any means of expansion without the branches. It's a picture of life-giving oneness. And here's the thing. Prayer is abiding. Prayer offers us the space to be together with God, our Father, whose heart is revealed through the person and work of Jesus. And Jesus' pursuit of oneness and intimacy with us went all the way back. It began with the incarnation. His coming in the flesh of full humanity, and throughout his life and ministry, he seeks to show us a life of oneness. In fact, he says in John's gospel that he desires to have the same level of intimacy with us that he has with his Father. That should blow your mind. In John chapter 10, a couple of days ago in community Bible reading, he says, I and the Father are one. That's, you, you don't get any more intimate than that. In fact, notice 
as we're reading the Gospel of John, I want you to notice Jesus hardly ever talks about himself without reference to his father. His identity is so wrapped up in his father's will and work, and their relationship is so intimate. But how? How did that happen? Because he was in the habit of sitting at his father's feet, listening to his words, and relating to him through prayer. The disciples saw it. Mary saw it. He says, without being united to to me, you can't do anything. And so in essence, what he's saying is, intimacy he's enjoying or he enjoyed with his father, he is now offering to us. And what does that intimacy look like? It looks like doing all of life through prayer. Martha's problem was she was trying to do life apart from him. She was doing life through busyness with some prayer. Mary was abiding in him, submitted, listening, content, and focused, and she was doing life through prayer. All of her life being funneled through the grid of prayer. Jesus offers us himself. He says, I'm the one thing necessary. The world is full of distractions. The world offers nothing but anxiety and trouble. And so let's choose the good portion together. Who knows what God might do through a people for whom prayer is as normal as breathing. Let's pray. Oh, Father, make prayer for us as normal as breathing in and out, inhaling the Spirit, breathing out the Spirit, inhaling your presence and your goodness and your adoption of us as your children and exhaling blessing and joy and contentment and peace to the world around us. We confess that we are anxious and troubled about many things. We confess that those things often suffocate our joy and prevent us from being able to say, oh, give us a vision of your love. Let us fall in love with you again anew every morning as we experience your mercies. Oh, how we long to be a people for whom prayer is as natural as breathing. And so please make it so. Holy Spirit, come and make us a people who do all of life through prayer. We don't do all of life through our checklists with a little prayer peppered in here and there, but really do find our most productive times, find our most, our most content times in the times where we're fellowshipping with you, sitting at your feet. Make it so, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, can you hear Mary in that song? Uh, you hear her heart. Uh, do, don't you want a heart like that? Just walk around humming that song. Uh, it'll do great, great things for your heart uh, to just meditate on those things. Uh, as you go, receive these words. Uh, grab hold of them tightly as you leave this place. Whatever mission, whatever relationships, uh, whatever hardships you're facing, as you go, know you go with him and uh, that he is uh, for you uh, as you face them. So receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen.